24 hours a day, seven days a week. A new way of radio and the beginning of a new talent. MoncoRadio.com, where music and minds meet. Hi everybody, it's Gene Simmons. You're listening to The Kiss Room on Monco Radio, but you knew that. You wanted the best and you got it! The highest band in the land, Kiss! Kiss Army, you wanted the best and you got it. I am Matt Porter and you are in the Kiss Room. With me on the phone is filmmaker, producer, and director Louis Antonelli, who my listeners will know from his award-winning movie One Live Kiss featuring Paul Stanley's Live to Win solo tour. Louis, welcome to the Kiss Room. Oh, thank you for having me, Matt. It's great to be here this morning. You know, it's, I'm thrilled we can connect because I know you have a big event coming up this weekend. It's the KISS Halloween Spectacular. It's at the River West Park Camp Fear Nightmare Theater, 23301 West Maple Road, Elkhorn, Nebraska. And it's if you go to CampFearOmaha.com, we can get all the information. But, Lewis, while I have you, give me the scoop. Well, um, we've had a lot of fun putting this together. Uh, kind of wanted to do something, uh, you know, for me, uh, going all the way back, um, Kiss has always been kind of uh, close, you know, closely related to Halloween. And I think with a lot of Kiss fans, because of the Paul Lynn Halloween special, which, uh, you know, actually was a little later on. I, I started uh, my uh, time with Kiss was uh, all the way back to 74. Uh, when I was 12, and I really just uh, gravitated to them very strongly because of that, um, you know, that original poster, that, uh, you know, Kiss New One, Casablanca Records and Tapes, that just very striking image with that red and the smoke, and uh, I just really loved it, and I bought the record, and uh, they actually gave me the poster in the shop. Uh, never forget that. Uh, it was um, Rose Records on Ashland Avenue on uh in um, Chicago, and uh, I, I saw the record, and I saw the poster, and I was like, I've got to buy this, you know, because my cousin had me, uh, my cousin Johnny had me into music uh, from a very early age. Uh, he was just like Paul, about 10 years older than me, and um, he was such a big influence on me because, you know, he we would go buy new Beatle records when they came out, and, you know, uh, Alice Cooper and Deep Purple and Cream and... Uh, you name it. I mean, he really loved, you know, uh, Zeppelin, uh, loved a lot of Zeppelin. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And he went to a lot of concerts. Um, so <clears throat> he um, really got me into stuff. So anyway, I used to go to record stores a lot. And uh, I, one day I saw this, you know, Kiss, here's this new album with these guys that reminded me of Meet the Beatles, the cover of Meet the Beatles. And I was like, wow, that is really something. So I was like, get the record, you know, Get, get out my three dollars and ninety eight cents. Get the record, and I see the poster, and was like, "Hey, when you guys are done with that poster, you think I can have it?" So, guy goes up, takes the ladder, was the thing. He pulls the poster, you know, down over there. Everything was like on fishing lines, like you know, hooked up <laughs> with uh, clothespins. And um, he goes, comes down, folds it, you know, folds it back up, and says, "Here, we're done with this stuff." I was, I was just wow. kind of like. 
Yeah, they were just kind of like, oh, that's Kiss stuff. And I was, you know, that was the way it was all through the early days with Kiss. It was just kind of like, oh, this band, oh, my God, or, you know, <laughs> or clowns, or this, or that. Or, you know, it was just like, no, they're actually great if you want to give them a chance, for God's sake. We and, everybody um, is thinking the same thing right now, Lewis. Do you have that poster still? Well, I will tell you, no, I don't. And here's the reason. Um, I, I kept it all those years, and I actually had it archivally framed, like, you know, museum-quality framed and mounted and, uh, you know, to preserve, you know, for acidity, acid-free uh, stuff. So I have a very close uh, friend who's now a business partner as well, uh, Zachary Vigi, who I met, uh, contacted me uh, when he read about me when I made uh, One Live Kiss. And... Um, Really, really good guy. I mean, uh, he's been in bands, and uh, he's uh, we're working on a special project right now, actually, that's Kiss-related. And um, he's such a great guy that, and he has a, a beautiful Kiss room. I mean, I'm talking about he's got, he's a drummer, he's got pinball machine, he's got like a really nice, you know, Kiss memorabilia, big his whole basement. So I was just like, um, I gave it to him. Wow. And I was like, "You've got to have this in your room. I want to come to your. I want to come to your place and look at it." Um, and because uh, you know, it's like uh, I had my day with it. You know, decades and all that. And it was up. It was up in many homes of mine. And I was just like, you know, I want to share this with somebody who wasn't there. You know, didn't see this kind of thing. And because you know, Zach is uh, in his early forties now. And um, I was just like, you know, he and he his father got him really into Kiss and. For him, uh, his kiss day started in the non-makeup era, more towards like uh, hot in the shade and revenge. Right. And uh, I, you know, he's always so excited about everything. And he would see my poster, and I was just like, you know, one, one day I was just kind of like, this. I want to, I want you to have this. I want to pass the torch on. You know what? So now you, everything that you named, obviously, you had a great mentor in music, t- turning you on to all these great bands, and then you discover Kiss. And when's the first time that you saw Kiss live? My first time, well, I met Kiss before I saw them live, and uh, that happened in, uh, well, I first saw them in person in um, June of, uh, June, I believe it was June, summer of 1974, uh, at Woodfield Mall. Uh, they were doing the uh, an event, actually, that Kiss themselves couldn't right. stand, of course, with the same, the great Kiss off. Right. And uh, my parents, uh, I, I see... Back then, like, okay, we lived about 26 miles or so. We were in Chicago, uh, northwest side of Chicago. And, well, you know, Woodfield Mall, 26 miles was kind of like you were packing a lunch, you know, to go someplace. <laughs> you know, nowadays we don't think of those things. But, okay, so I um, I just begged my parents, you know, Saturday, please take me. You know, was, like, you know, my dad had even had to work that night and everything. And they weren't too keen on this at all. But... You know, they were nice to me, so they took me. But boy, were they not happy when they got there. Because the place was mobbed with just a bunch of people. And everything was about, you know, everything really wasn't so much about kiss. It was about kissing. Right. They were all laying there kissing. You had to have your lips in contact. Right. Yeah, it was like a a novelty. (laughs) And the band came and they were giving out buttons. And, you know, that that classic kiss Casablanca poster was all over the place. Wow. You know, and it was just like, oh, yeah, it was, uh, God knows if people knew how rare those are now, um, they wouldn't have just torn them all up and threw them away when it was over. But, um, 
the um, you know the kids showed up, and I was about you know let's say thirty five forty feet from them. They were you know on this makeshift stage, and I was just like, oh my god, there they are! Yes, my parents were kind of like, <laughs> oh my god, you you wrecked our Saturday to see these <laughs> these goofy guys. And I was like, man, aren't they cool? And my dad was like, no, cool is like. Benny Goodman. <laughs> cool is like Glenn Miller. Cool is okay, Miles Davis. That's cool, okay? Because no, no, these guys are not cool. They're goofs in makeup. That's crazy. Now, yeah, at that, that point, was, obviously, you know, in your young filmmaking career, you didn't happen to have a camera and snap any pictures at that event, did you? No, I didn't. I did have many cameras, and then I was already taking a lot of images and all this, but no, because here's a reason. I grew up not particularly what you'd call wealthy. Um, so taking pictures was something that had to be a very deliberate right. thought about thing because a roll of film and processing and all this and printing was expensive. Right. To say the least. So I, I didn't think of taking pictures of things like that because for me it was just kind of like I took pictures taking very seriously because I actually at the time I was making money taking pictures. I would, I would take pictures for local newspapers, even for the bigger newspapers. And I would get 10 to $20 an image. Uh, I used to early concert photography of mine all the way into the, the later seventies, early eighties. I, um, I would sell pictures to circus magazine, cream magazine, hit parader, rolling stone. I mean, you name it, cause they all paid 10 to 20 bucks, you know, as usual for, for to a kid, you know, cause I was a teenager. They would pay you, you know, and um, one time it was really, uh, really, uh, this is a very fond memory for me. I had, um, I was um, showing some pictures, recent stuff and stuff to Queen. And um, Freddie Mercury um, said, um, I told him, I just, you know, this is one that's going to be called Bashoon, and I just, I just got $20. And he was like, and he brought it up in English pounds, and he was like, oh, my God, you're getting so ripped off. <laughs> And, and and he's like he's like photographers make much more than that, Lewis. And then he thought a minute, and he realized I was a teenager. And and he thought back, and he was just like, "No, I understand. Yes, twenty dollars was a lot of money to me when I was your age, too." <laughs> you know. So with that in mind, what was your first published image? Do you remember? Um, yes, my first published image was from my first Kiss concert, which was well. Anyway. I better backtrack a little because in November of 74, my cousin, Johnny, again, he, uh, he took me to Mount Prospect, Illinois, to a record shop to meet Kiss before they were going to play that night at the Aragon Ballroom uh, in Chicago. And I could not go to that show because he had to work that night. Uh, and I couldn't go myself, and I didn't have any friends who could do that with me because, you know, I was still, you know, was a kid. And... Um, but I went to the store to meet them, and they came in. I always loved joking with the guys after that because it was like, you know, there was not many people there to meet them. But this was at a time that, you know, Kiss was infamous, not famous. <laughs> and um, they came in, and I always loved to tell them, I said, my God, did you guys stink? <laughs> I mean, because, you know, they had, they had, like, you know, gaffer's tape on some parts of their, you know, costumes. And right. they only had, you know, they didn't change out of the costumes a lot because there was only, like, you know, the, the under, uh, what do you call a spandex thing, they, those they've changed, but everything else was kind of like musky. <laughs> oh, man. 
Okay, yeah, we love joking about it. They were like, oh, those lean days in the car. Sweaty <laughs> leather. Sweaty <laughs> leather and... Uh, and uh, Bill O'Quinn, uh, you know, using his charge card to uh, pay for gas for the tour and <laughs> all, those, all those wonderful things that people, you know, when they think of KISS, they think of, you know, this mon- you know, monster-sized band and all this. And, you know, I'll tell you, in those days, they really were still like that, except on a budget. Right. And you know, they stayed at the, like the holiday inns and stuff. And it was like, you know, they were the coolest guys though. But I always gravitated to Paul because even from that first poster, um, and the, and the album cover, I was just like, Oh, that guy with the star on his face. He looks so, you know, he really intrigues me. Um, and I started reading bio stuff and all this. And I found out he was an art student and you know, all this. And I felt a real like, connection to this, his, his kind of way of being. You know what I'm saying? Um, when there was very little of this kind of stuff out there then, but I did know certain things about him. And I was like, oh, that guy is really cool. He's, and he reminded me a bit of my cousin, kind of like, uh, you know, the whole you know, Kiss Rebel thing. Because you know, my cousin was like, you know... Uh, um, he had his own, like, you know, in, in the, in the basement of the house he made out of, uh, he made like a cardboard wall and he had his own, like, you know, black light room with zigzag posters and, you know, um, lava lamps and all this, you know, crazy shit. Cause him and his <laughs> friends were smoking a lot of pot down there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, playing music really loud. You know, okay, it sounds just, like you I, had a good a good leader into the world of rock and roll. So nice. I, I really did. A uh, good leader into the world of rock and roll and a good starting point for my hearing loss. Um, <laughs> you know, all those bands, absolutely. Every band you name, there's definitely, that's going to add up to uh, ringing in your ears. <laughs> and, and that leads to my first concert ever, actually. My cousin John and his friends um, got an extra ticket and they took me to see at the old International Amphitheater in Chicago, uh, Alice Cooper Band, 1973. Wow. Uh, Billion Dollar Babies to I loved it. I, it, was, it was wild, crazy, loud as hell, M80s and cherry bombs and everything going all toilet paper flying all over the place. And I was like, this is for me. <laughs> I, re- I really like this shit. And I was just like, oh, my God. You know, and it's just, it was just, so intense and then wasn't able to go for a while because my parents didn't like that i particularly went to a concert like that um so anyway a lot of the there was a lot of subterfuge in the early part of my life because my cousin like i said he was a prankster and he he'd, he'd figure out ways of like you know all right well it's like you know not uh we're gonna have you do this now okay and i'm gonna take you to go see this but make sure you don't tell anybody you know, your <laughs> uncle john and may are gonna kill me and i was like because we lived five doors away from each other. My, my family kind of lived on one block and uh, across two alleyways on Addison Street near Cicero in Chicago, not very far from Wrigley Field. Um, so uh, my first, so when I met the band, which was uh, November 8th, 1974, I'll never forget it. That night they were playing with, uh, they were actually headlining because Mark Bolin of T-Rex was supposed to, but then was unsure if he was going to be there or not. But I, I wasn't at that show that night, but that show was um, a band Paul likes to talk about a lot, Hydra, who sure. he knew pretty well from touring, Hydra and UFO and Mark Bolin T-Rex. 
um, I didn't, wasn't able to see that, but I was able to meet them that afternoon. It was an incredible thing. It was a life-changing thing for me because uh, I got to really spend time with them, in particular, Paul. Um, and I sat down with them, and I, I showed them, like, you know, experimental pictures I had done and told them about, you know, short, you know, am, you know amateur films I made in 16mm and 8mm and every gauge you could think of and the films I was studying and all this and, you know, the drawings I would make for my storyboards and all this stuff. And he was very, very kind and very interested. And um, I don't, I'm not sure if he saw a kindred spirit or if he just, he just liked my whole attitude and everything. And I just also then I had as I do today, I had a, quite a lot of hoods, but I just asked him right out. Um, and I would like to put you in a movie. Can I make a movie with you? <laughs> you know, which is, which is fantastic. I mean, in a way, when you think about the way your love of music and then your creativity and your filmmaking, the story intertwines, you know, quite a bit. And I mean, obviously we're broadcasting here from Montgomery County Community College. And we have a communication program with filmmakers and TV. They want to make TV and things like that. So I, I love the way that your passion for rock and roll and then your passion for filmmaking and being creative are so intertwined. Just listening to you tell these stories and the fact that you can sit down with Paul Stanley even in those earliest days and talk about making a movie and, and then say to him, hey, look, let's make a movie. That's that's pretty yeah, great. It didn't even it didn't even occur to me that, you know, it's like, no, that won't happen now. But uh, and I, was, cause I was just like, yeah, let's make a movie. You know, and he was like, uh, and he was like, well, I'll tell you what, I'm trying my best. You you keep doing doing your best, giving it your all, put everything out there. And he goes, in one of these days, maybe we will make a movie together. Okay, Lou? <laughs> and I, I was just like in seventh heaven. And I won't never forget that because Bill O'Coin and I believe Sean Delaney was there as well. And um, they um, gave me a set of those lips pens. Wow. And they were like, you know, we yep. really like you. Come around, you know. And it's funny because all through 1975, then I saw them about eight or nine times because um, they were around all the time. I mean, how these guys ever even slept, I'll never know. Um, because they were always all over the place and zigzagging the country. But they were in the Midwest an awful lot then. Because, uh, you know, that was really where they really took off. It wasn't, you know, no uh, no slights to my dear New York friends, uh, KISS friends and uh, music friends, but I'm sorry, uh, KISS might be a New York band, but they made it in the Midwest. Right. Um, that's where that's, we embrace them. You guys were kind of like, ah, until <laughs> NASA called them. So, um, and, you know, uh, the whole KISS army and everything else with... Uh, you know, uh, all originated um, here with Bill Starkey. And all Shout that. out to Bill Starkey, Jay Evans, Terre Haute, Indiana. <laughs> Absolutely. What a phenomenal guy. I love him. You know, back then, it was, you know, everything was kind of word of mouth or kind of backs of magazines and stuff where you would just kind of like write people. And it's like, oh, you saw that? You got a ticket stub? You got this? You got that? Well, speaking of like tickets and stuff like that, I... No matter that I had the lips pen that I could get in and all that, I because then uh, until the Destroyer tour, um, actually until yeah and, and until the Destroyer tour, you could still use the lips pens and I but I just wore them like a badge of honor. But I still bought tickets to shows, and uh, my first because uh, I wanted to support. You know, I, I I saw that these guys were putting everything in everything, and I wanted to give my okay. 
ticket prices back then were like four dollars and fifty cents. Okay, I mean, <laughs> they're a big difference from now. <laughs> um, the least I ever paid to see Kiss with Rush was three dollars and fifty cents. Wow. So yeah, it's a different day now. Of course, that uh, the service fees for thirty seconds of somebody doing something is, I think, are forty or forty-five dollars <laughs> right. now. And that's not even somebody doing it. That's an automated system doing it. <laughs> but uh, they didn't even have service fees back then. But then when they did, I think they were a quarter or fifty cents. So you know, um, yes, we're in a different era, of course. <laughs> You know, and kind of bringing bringing us up to the present, obviously, you know, like I said at the start, you have a big event this weekend, the KISS Halloween Spectacular, when people can go to CampFearOmaha.com for the info. And one of the movies that you're going to show is called Midnight Movie, which is, it's I think it's, you said it's your first professional film, and then it also integrates KISS. Kind of bring us up to that point and talk about, you know, what we, we, we could see at the event when you show that. Okay, um, thank you for bringing that up, because actually it wasn't my first professional film, it was about my fourth. Uh, I completed that film when I was 19, hmm. and um, I, uh, I had my, my first film uh, that I, I was professionally made that was in movie theaters and all that was when I was 17. Wow. Uh, that movie, that was, movie was called The Game, and uh, made for a whole whopping budget of $425. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, yeah, I, I, um, I can make, uh, as Kiss loves to say, uh, the band, um, I could make a, uh, I could make, you know, uh, I could squeeze a penny into Lincoln screen <laughs> because I like to, I like to maximize budgets. I really do. And I think, I think any slob can go out there and just, you know, be like, Oh, I'm so creative and all this and throw money at a production and get some semblance of quality or some semblance of something for somebody wants to look at. But to me, it's a lot harder and a lot more fun and challenging to say, okay, I have, say I have $200,000 to make a, a production, $250,000. Well, I want to make that look like about a million five. Right. On screen. That to me, that's what I do. And that's, that's coming from very definitely a Roger Corman sensibility of, uh, you know, the great, you know, they call him the, the king of the, you know, great B-movies of AIP and all that, yes. And uh, I, if the audience, if you're not familiar with Mr. Corman, check out his films because you've probably seen many of his films and don't even know it. Um, but he made all those classics with Vincent Price and uh, before that, you know, uh, films like Day of the World, uh, Day, of the, Day of the World Ended and uh, Not of This Earth and just some really, really fun times at the movies. Um, you know, I mean, even he, think, thinking about that, I mean, the one thing that I think would be interesting to kind of go there is how, what tips, what were tricks that you used to get the maximum out of the money to put it all on the screen? What are some things to our young filmmakers listening here at Monco? What tips can they use from your experiences to stretch that $425 into a million? <laughs> Well, okay, and well, in the case of like the game, and we will get back to midnight movie, which we were discussing before, is on um, the the okay. Well, there's many ways you can do it. One of the ways is not, frankly, not being an ass, <laughs> and that is um, getting in there and, and 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 getting people to like you um, because you're genuine. You're not trying to just use them. You care about people, 
and you you know you want to make it a thing where you know you're working with you know at the time you know just past this time actually well pardon me during the time of uh the game i'm losing track of myself i'm sorry because i thought we were talking about midnight movie which is later and that's i'm all over the map today I'm good with you. I'm, I'm trying to follow, and uh, I'll tell you, uh, my my espresso is helping me a great deal with it. So, anyway, um, I was in high school. I went to uh, Gordon Tech uh, High School in Chicago, which at the time was um, quite a famous high school around the, the country for, uh, you know, um, academics, sports, so forth. There was a very big sports school. It was on Addison Street as well in California. A lot of a lot of aspects of my early life wrap around Addison Street. I will tell you, uh, that's where I really found my identity, and um, I really that's another aspect of my life that really kind of relates to how Paul and Kiss were because you know a lot of things wrapped around Queens Queens Boulevard and different areas of the Bronx and uh, and Brooklyn, and and same with the Ramones actually. I mean, you know, a lot of things were wrapped around Rockaway and 53rd and 3rd and you know, there was very specific areas in their life where they came from. And that's another, you know, band that I, I was blessed to really get to know very well and uh did many 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 works with them. Uh Johnny was Ramones was one of uh very important person in my life, like a mentor as well like Paul Stanley. Uh, it's very interesting to me, too, that both of those bands came from virtually the same area and the same time period and really changed the face of music and culture forever with what they did. Absolutely. And uh, an honor to know and work with both of them, I'll tell you. But anyway, uh, ways to maximize budgets is, um, well, first off, you find as much as you can to put on, to do and get on the screen props, anything you need to do for free um, by scouring around to see who has things and who will lend you things and so forth, but stuff like that. Secondly, um, like I say, when I, when I made the game, I was still a student at Gordon Tech High School, and I was in the TV, uh, TV theater uh, stage, all that. And so when I ran, I was a staff chief of production for uh, WKGT-TV. Um, which when we made, you know, daily television and we, I, I actually had a rock show, which was kind of like, uh, uh, you could say it was highly influenced by frame for frame Don Kirshner's rock concert. Right. Um, I, I would get in there and I would introduce bands. We would shoot them live in the studio, multi-camera and all that. Then I would do concert reviews. And I thought I was kind of like, you know, the teenage version of Don Kirshner. It was kind of a <laughs> lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I was real serious about it. Like, Don Kirshner always with his delivery, you know, I was, you know, I was throwing around, you know, the A&M Records guys and this and that. I would do the same thing. But I would be, uh, you know, these guys are managed by this one and this one. Yeah, just total Don Kirshner ripoff. But I loved it because I was like, I like Don Kirshner. I, you know, we used to love all those music shows that were on, you know, at, you know, 10, 11, 12 o'clock, Wolfman Jack, all that, you know, ABC in concert, Dick Clark, all that was, you know, wonderful times for music television, I'll tell you. You know what, so, that's, um, I think that's the exciting thing is you're really growing up in one of the greatest times of rock. You know, really, the, every band that you've named and the fact that you've gotten to know them personally, even at a young age, and you're able to create these kind of things, but also be in the midst of that scene. You know, really, it's 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 almost seems like a storybook kind of a thing because it really was a time that I don't think we're ever going to see. Like where you have bands like, you know, you named Kiss and Ramones. Two of the most influential bands ever, I think, and 
and and yeah, you know and know. you know are, are we ever going to see like that kind of age? But yet in the same way, you were doing television, you were doing a show, and it's exciting. I mean, now in 2021, everybody's got you know a YouTube channel or whatever. But at the time, you're doing stuff that you really had to work to make it happen. And I think Absolutely. that's just so exciting. Yeah. You know, the, you're talking early 70s into the 80s. You know, even just that, what we talked about, the idea of having a camera. Now, taking a, a picture is like frivolous. I mean, everybody's got a camera yeah. in their pocket and can just snap, snap, snap. But even the way that you frame that as like almost like a sacred thing, I, you had to know what you wanted to take a picture of because it cost a fortune. You had to take it to the photo mat or, or you know, wherever and get it done. But the way that everything you're describing, it's that kind of romantic view of, of those days of rock and production. And it's, it's, you know, it's really it's putting a smile on my face ear to ear. Oh, my, I tell you, my God, back then it was like, yes, you had to be very deliberate uh, taking images anywhere, anything you didn't let. We're not even talking about motion picture film. Right. Anything like that uh, with, with uh, still images like, okay, in more, let's say, the last 20 years or so, I when I was, you know, officially working for Kiss on tour books or, or you know, as an official photographer at events or things like this. Well, okay, I was with some other guys who I like very much, and I'm not slighting you guys at all. Believe me, I love you. But you know my attitude, and that's, you guys, you know, I do not understand at all shooting, you know, 3,000 images in a night. <laughs> right. I don't get that. You know, the, to me, that's fish in a bar barrel of photography. And I'm just like, well, why don't you just free roll it, you know, HD free roll it, and then just grab still frames because <laughs> 3,000 shots a night, my God. And, uh, or, you know, even, so they were like, well, how many did you take? And I was like, about 50. <laughs> They're like, what? Why so little? I was like, well, I, I, I hunt, I stalk my images. I wait for moments that are going to happen, and then I capture them. Or I don't, or I fail at capturing them. But I'll tell you, I'm going to give it my damn best shot. But I'm not going to just, you know, sh click off shutters like crazy. No, I don't do that. I, I want to, f to find the moment, feel it out, just be in the vibe with the performer and just grab it. Just snap it out of the air. And that's what I believe in doing, and that's I still do it to this day. I will not go out and shoot all that. So I, it tires me out just to say three thousand <laughs> shots. And I did an entire. I did. Uh, I was Kiss's official photographer. It was for the Sturgis event uh, when they did that, and I in the whole weekend being there, the whole time of Sturgis, I shot about two hundred and something pictures. <laughs> um, and that was official pictures with the governor, and they got the you know the. Um, the key to Sturgis, the city, it was, you know, in South Dakota, it was Kiss Day, you know, in the, in the state. And, and the, you know, I was, and I was I gave them all the images that, you know, and they used quite a lot of them. And I, there's, there's no fluff, there's no extra, because I don't believe in that. I believe you, you know, unless you make an error technically, um, you make your shots count. And that's one of the things I could say to students is, you know, don't, you know, don't bemoan what you don't have. Um, go out and, you know, like I said, if you don't have, I, I, not long ago, I was, because I very strongly believe in mentoring students because I've had great mentors in my life, um, both in music and old Hollywood cinema. A lot of people have really helped me get where I am. And uh, that's one of the things you need to do. You need to talk to people. You need to be humble. You can't get out there. You, you need to have a certain amount of, I could say chutzpah, or maybe you could say slight arrogance 
about you. But what that does is give you a sense of, you know, I'm not going to let this business swallow me whole because, you know, back then or now or ever, it's a very, very hard business. In fact, just about impossible business to to deal with. Mm. Unless you have a, as my friend Mike uh, Gaynor used to love to say, he ran a record shop. He was like, he a new record would come in of a certain thing, and he'd go, uh, I'd go, wow, I'm like, that's, that's pretty, you know, in jazz or something like that. He, I'd say, well, Mike, that's really terrific. And he'd go, yeah, well, it takes a cat with a certain kind of wig for that. <laughs> and, I, and I always love that kind of like, you know, that little, you know, beatnik kind of like straight up and down, you know, a Vietnam dude kind of talking. He's like, yeah, a certain kind of wig needs to listen to that. <laughs> and um, I really love that. You know, like, you know, we're talking about avant-garde John Coltrane stuff or, you know, Albert Eiler is way out there screeching horns and just going crazy. But yet, yet there is a real, um, there is a real structure and a real, there's real creativity going on in all that noise. I mean, it's the same thing could be said for maybe John Cale, perhaps. But um, anyway, you know, you really need to, first off, learn to live with little sleep. Mm-hmm. That's number one. That's a really big deal. Learn to just train yourself to abuse yourself. That's one of the things you're really going to have to do if you want to make films or if you want to make music or if you want to do anything creative. Um, secondly, you need to believe in yourself to a level of insanity. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, Yes, you cannot, because nobody else will. Okay, you're going to have to show them, you know, you're going to have to show people, because especially nowadays, I feel actually kind of bad for, um, even with all the, you know, that they got every toy available, or every new kind of camera, or, you know, their cell phone will make movies, or whatever, I will tell you, I feel bad for younger people today, because it's because of the very nature that nowadays everybody is a director. Everybody is a producer. Everybody's a, everybody's developing some <laughs> something that you have like thousands upon thousands of productions being made I, to, to better or worse quality or thematically, you know, how however well they, you know, start to learn how to write. That's very important because I meet a lot of filmmakers who, you know, they can take maybe a pretty picture, but they can't write a or read a paragraph because, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll type like I was working with an editor recently on the actually the promo thing for this weekend, you know, and uh, I was I could have done it myself, but I wanted to work with younger people. And I sent her some text about, you know, things as, as, as straightforward as like sync. OK, like the images need to be in sync. OK. And because, um, you know, she's like, well, nobody's going to notice that but you. <laughs> and I was like, um, yeah. no, actually, let's put it this way. <laughs> if nobody notices it but me, that's that's bad enough. Right. I said, but how about an audience of one? How about an audience that Paul Stanley is going to see this, may see this, and he'd think I went out of my mind <laughs> that I put him out of sync. <laughs> okay. And he, uh. he was like. Like, you know, you're really demanding. I was like, my dear, if you think this is demanding, I sell, sell shoes. Do something, <laughs> please. Don't do this. Because actually, I'm being so nice to you. Whereas I could just turn all devil on you and say, are you out of your mind? Right. Telling me that saying you can't see that this is out of sync. I have to tell you about this. I have to tell you about that. You know, in between, I'm buying them like, you know, 
chicken wings and beers and this and that. And we Nobody ever bought me a chicken wing making anything. I had to you know, sit there practically starving. Uh, you know, if you know? If, uh, if the video and the sound are out of sync, if you're the only one that notices, it will still piss you off for the rest of the day. It's, you know, <laughs> yes, considering like, you know, you're okay. That's like your work. We were syncing up the trailer for the original trailer for One Live Kiss, and I'm just kind of like, kind of like, well, you know, uh, not only was that production of Labor of Love 32 years in its genesis, but I, I worked four years on that movie from inception, in other words, from when Paul was going to do Live to Win and all that, and I so gravitated to it, and I said, okay, this is the time, because I found out from Eric Singer about that, and I was like, okay, now this is the time. I think this is the time I'm going to make a film with Paul. And from inception to that, to we, you know, we agreed to actually make the film on my birthday. Uh, I was with Kiss in California. At, uh, it was actually a very sad weekend because it was when uh, Eric was one of the most lovely people in the world. I love Eric. He's a dear friend. It's when his, his father passed away. Oh. And, uh, Kiss was performing a series of shows in uh, Northern California. And uh, this was 2006, and it was actually on my birthday that we said we were going to make the film. And um, I will never forget that because Kiss was playing a small, like, very small venue in one of those, like, casinos. And and it brought me back to the days of, like, you know, okay, well, here's Kiss in a wedding banquet hall. Right. And I'm going to tell you, there is nothing like Kiss in a small little place because they basically blow the hell out of it <laughs> okay and it's like and when you're right up front like even in the old days i used to say i mean well first off my ears were numb for days on end <laughs> my body was vibrating i had their bodily fluids of sweat and blood and every all over me and i would be just like yes give me more <laughs> I love this stuff. Yes, you guys are incredible. You know, know, I was going to say, one of the things that's so great going back to it is the way that these stories of filmmaking and rock and roll have intermingled. But I kind of want to put us, I've taken us all over the map. I want to take us back to one of the movies that you're showing this weekend at the Kiss Halloween Spectacular is your movie Midnight Movie. And and I had read the bio that you, that was one of the first movies where you incorporated Kiss. So let's, Use 1981 yeah. as a reference, and then fast yeah. we're gonna we're gonna trace from that movie to working with Paul Stanley. You got it. Well, actually, Midnight Movie is a textbook example of a, a very ambitious film that really covers a lot in about 15 minutes, 16 minutes. That through. I did not have a big budget for this film, yet, and what it is, is the midnight, midnight movie takes place on Halloween Eve, and it's all about people who love, in particular, to go, to go see late-night horror shows, like old spook shows and like that, wrapped around the film, something that's very, very close to my heart in the world is uh, the people and the movie who made Night of the Living Dead, the original Night of the Living Dead, right. 1968. Uh, I was crazy about that film from the first time I saw it, which literally traumatized me um, when it came out in 1968. But see, I was like one of those people where I felt it was so real. I was just a kid, but I had to go back again and again and again and again because I was already taking pictures and disseminating, you know, like like filtering everything through this kind of like 
Uh, I guess some people in my neighborhood considered it like a really weird psyche. <laughs> this kid is like really out there. Um, they, you know, some people used to actually say to my mother, I look back on it now and I just have really, because, you know, nowadays everybody's like, you know, all their, their kids are all wonderful and creative and this <laughs> and that. Back then, because I was the way I was, it was kind of like they used to say to my mom, literally, in front of me, it's okay, May, you have another song. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> It was just like, uh-huh, and it's right here, I'm going to put my name all over the place. So with with Midnight Movie as an example of, okay, I got to know the people who made Night of the Living Dead. You know, postage stamps and, and writing letters and making phone calls were my best friends. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I lived by postage stamps, and I used to write people, and I found out where they were in, in, in uh, Pennsylvania, and I, I was like, you know, I want to know you people. I want to know, you know, I, I want to, uh, will you talk to me, please? And because I wanted to make a film about Night of the Living Dead and old horror shows late at night. So um, we got this together, and then uh, I won't go into it. There's, there's another whole story about... Um, but I have a you know a voice section in the film that's Orson Welles and it's actually him and I actually I never met Mr. Welles I would love to have but uh, I tricked him to come to the to the telephone <laughs> uh, and he was very upset with me because he was I I pretended I was a producer friend of his and I found at a restaurant he was at and he was not at all happy with me and after about ten minutes of being completely berated for. Uh, <laughs> for uh, inter- interrupting his lunch and how dare I and all this. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And he was like, no, if you've had this kind of tenacity, tell me what you want. So I told him, and he was like, okay, I'll help you. Here's a number. Can I go eat now? Will you leave me alone? And That's I was too like, funny. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, like it's, like, you have one of the legendary voices ever, you know, on the yeah. line berating you, and then, but then he's going to help you. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was just like I figured. I got. I have, you know. I, mean, I know we're going to go back to Kiss here, but you know they they wrote the song. You got nothing to lose. Right, right. You, you go out there, and if you're not going to give it, if you're not going to just say, well, you know, it's like, yeah, he's Orson Welles, and he's somebody I idolize, but I'm not afraid to talk to him. <laughs> and I'm gonna, you know, maybe I was just goofy enough, or just. You know, just out there enough. Maybe I'm just, you know, it's one of those wigs. I got one of those wigs. I don't, I have no shame. I'll, I'll ask you, you know, I'll ask your mother to hold up a light to, if I need it to, 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 to get a shot. I, I don't, I'll, I'll ask my mother and she's dead. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> so I, um, we put this movie together. We got help from Lucasfilm, from Al Lansdale, God bless him at Lucasfilm, helping us get all these film clips different stuff from Hardman and Associates and uh, with Image 10 and uh, with Night of the Living Dead People, which, believe me, the first time I was ever there and I was in the locations where Night of the Living Dead was being shot, was shot in the 60s, and I was in the very basement where, you know, that in the farmhouse where they're all holed up, you know, in Night of the Living Dead, the, the basement didn't actually exist. The basement is, was actually the production office's basement in, in uh, you know, the original, um, the latent image, George Romero's the latent image. I went down to this, you know, basement, and here it is. I'm standing in the exact place this film was shot. And then I go into the, into the storage rooms, and here's where all the negatives were stored. Here's where the cameras were stored. Here's where all the sound recording and lights were stored. 
And I'm, I was just like, and I'm looking at this equipment because it was still there then. And I was like, this is like a sacred ground wow. right here. This is, I was like blown away to touch the camera that, you know, the Aeroflex 2C that shot Night of the Living Dead, you know, with the blimp and everything. It was all there. Um, now this stuff is all in, you know, collector's hands. Right. And, you know, but back then it was just still, you know, just this cult movie that went around. And anyway, yes, I put all this stuff together. And I, yes, I contacted every kind of person you could believe to help me make this movie because I really wanted to make a very ambitious film that was a short film. It was like, you know, something that would play, you know, on PBS, on television, theatrically. You know, back then, if you could with M&R distribution and so forth, there were ways of getting your films out there on movie screens, opening up for, you know, Cujo. Right. Say, um, uh, or, uh, you know, I remember one time the game, which is this black and white film noir kind of uh, film uh, that's like five minutes long that takes place in 1946 Chicago and this, the, with these like hoods playing cards. And at the end of it, they're all dead. Mm. And that's five minutes later. And that film wound up playing with, you know, never forget, here's this gigantic ad for, uh, like, The Empire Strikes Back, and here's this little ad, you know, Louis Antonelli's film, The Game, uh, you know, we'll, you know, playing at the Portage Theater or at the Norwich Theater or here, you know, and here's this giant ad for, you know, and then it turns out that people from Lucasfilm would help me to make a uh, midnight movie. Wow. And um, The Living Dead and so forth. So what I did was, is before... Right before the film ends with the Orson Welles track, um, it's kind of like a false ending. I, I do this montage of uh, classic moments from horror films that kind of all tie in together into this like rhythmic and visual like symphony of, of horror. And I thought because of the themes of the film of people going out late at night, you know, being kind of like, a, like almost like a private club, so to speak. Uh, I wanted to use the song King of the Nighttime World. And that's what I did. I, I wound up, you know, getting together with, uh, you know, Mr. Coyne and, you know, member, you know, factions of KISS. And I was able to use um, King of the Nighttime World on the soundtrack of uh, Midnight Movie. That is and, fantastic. Um, and again, uh, I could never have afforded the licensing and everything of all that. Things were looser than in terms of, you know, there wasn't, well, you know, there were, but I, I wasn't facing this at the time of, you know, you know, click rights or anything else for, you know, television broadcast or video or home video. It was, there, was no real, there was no real home video of any kind. Um, it was just basically infancy then. You know, now you have to make, you have to have separate, you know, agreements for every different place you're going to show it on, including the Internet. If you're doing it right, if you're not going out there and just thinking you could steal anything you want and use right. it, because that's wrong. Uh, students, that's wrong. You have to go about it the proper way. Otherwise, someday the FBI will be knocking at your door. <laughs> <clears throat> so we're talking about and, um, Midnight Movie, obviously part of the screening this weekend at the KISS Halloween Spectacular. I'm talking with producer, filmmaker, director, Louis Antonelli. Um, you can see that movie, Midnight Movie, along with the main feature, obviously, I would say to all KISS fans listening, One Life Kiss, your movie, award-winning movie that you did with Paul Stanley. So kind of take us on a fast-forward. You hook up, you put King in the Nighttime World in your 1981 movie. We fast-forward into the 2000s. Obviously, you've had an experience with Paul along the way. How does this come about? 
Well, like I said, I, I you know I've always stayed with Kiss. I, I uh, I've always enjoyed Kiss. I've gone to see them, photograph them. You know, we would hook up different places occasionally, um, very informally. I mean, I would see them at you know record store things or something. It wasn't like you know, I was a great friend of theirs or anything like that. Nothing like that. It was more just like you know, hey, how you doing? All that. Well, along the way, I got to know. Um, well, Keith LaRue, who I'm sure all KISS fans know very well. Absolutely. Um, and Eric Singer. And, you know, some other people, you know, in the, in the, in the KISS family, in the KISS camp. And uh, always really, you know, like I say, Eric is somebody who's so important to me. I love him as a brother because he, he and I have a, a very similar background and sensibility in music as, I mean, you know, same like with um, Peter Chris, that he was a student of Gene Krupa. Um, um, Eric's favorite drummer in the, who idolizes in the world is Buddy Rich. You know, a lot of people think you know rock drummers are all you know everybody's John Bonham or this that, which right. of course you know they love in Ginger Baker and all that. And of course, those are incredible people. But if you want to talk about the people like the like Eric idolizes, that's Buddy Rich. And I and many listeners may not even know who he is, but he's one of the greatest drummers who ever lived. Uh, in jazz and big band uh, music, um, I mean, just what the man could do with three three drums in front of him would you know just blow your mind away. He didn't need a gigantic drum kit at all. He needed three drums or or a hi hat. He could just on a hi hat. I remember one time seeing Max Roach, who I got to know very well. He was one of the founders of Bebop with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. Um, I saw him perform an entire set on nothing but a hi hat. Mm. And he blew people away. I mean, it was just, I was mesmerized watching him. What he, he played the stand. He played the top of it. He, he rang, he, he, would, he would use his foot to just like, just slightly open it to create like a sizzle effect. I mean, the things that these men would do, these creative geniuses would do, saying, okay, I just have a hi-hat. You know, I'm going to play that. That's going to become... Five instruments, not just one instrument, of this like polyrhythmic right. theory, and so Eric and I connected on a lot of those kind of, of of vibes of like you know about about music love, love of music people, and also you know we're both Midwesterners too. That's another you know Midwest people tend to be a certain way. That's why I've always stayed in the Midwest. I this had always been my base, and I travel around the world, but. Uh, all the time, and uh, but I wouldn't dream of living in L.A. or New York because it's just not my my scene. It's not my vibe. I like to go there. You don't have the wig for that. <laughs> I don't. No, I'm, I'm very definitely a Midwest guy. I mean, the Chicago and now Omaha, uh, very definitely. Um, I love it. I, I love the feeling. I love the people, and uh, it's just it's what speaks to me. You know, it's um, I see. I don't want. 24 hours a day, even though half the time it winds up that I don't want 24 hours a day of my life to be about the the film business, the entertainment business, or freaking movies. Right. I want to have a life. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and students, this is something I could tell you: live your life. Don't just get out there and think that you know. Don't um, think that your movies will be just the greatest thing in the world because you have references to other movies in them. Okay, no, that's not, you know, I know Quentin Tarantino, he got very fortunate by letting that work for him. 
and there's other people doing it now as well, but believe me, you don't want your movies to be about just everybody else's movies or homages or to other directors or all those things. Yes, we all cop things from each other. We all blatantly, I'll never forget, you know, one time I was a student of Martin Scorsese's at the American Film Institute, which was an incredible honor. I spent quite a bit of time with him, and I was asking him about a shot in Raging Bull that I felt really reminded me of a shot of Orson from Orson Welles's um, Macbeth from the forties. And I said, did you, did that, you know, were you referencing that there? Did that inspire you to make that shot? He goes, no, I outright stole it. <laughs> and I was like, there you go. I was like, I've done the same thing. I, even at that, I, I, yeah, I steal stuff from other people and say, yes, all right, bro, I made that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually was going to make a film once about a crazy ass film director who, uh, was so pretentious and, his uh, he was his mother gave birth to him because uh, she was impregnated by a Van Gogh self portrait in the Louvre, <laughs> and um, his name was Pierre, and yeah, his name was Pierre, and he made all this whacked out stuff. And um, an interviewer once was I asked him this was in the script. An interviewer was asking him um, if he was influenced by Hitchcock for this certain sequence in one of his films, and he goes in a fury, flurry of French, he goes, that bastard stole that from me. <laughs> and he's like, I'm the one who originated that. And he was like, but, but you weren't even alive when, when Hitchcock did that. How did you steal that? How did Hitchcock steal it from you? He goes, he stole it from my mother's womb. Oh. So you see, I mean, it's like people like that pretend it was like he 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 stole it from me when I was still in the cosmos of of the never regions of my mother's womb. You know, because I believe me, there's people like that in the film business. They're funnier than hell, and I enjoy every second being around them because of the hilarity. I can just sit back and tell, call my friends and just go, "Can you believe that this guy said this to me?" It makes for a good story, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny as well. So, so anyway, um, so it's, okay. So I started. I heard about Paul's um, "Live to Win" concept, and I knew what he had been through um, with his divorce and different things that happened in his life. And I kind of was really feeling what was happening with what he wanted to do with the, the, his "Live to Win" solo album. I mean, uh, and I knew he was doing something important here because it was like, to him, something that really he needed to do because he was doing art at the time again. He went back to doing artwork for therapy uh, and it turned into a wonderful business for him, which is great, and I love his artwork. Um, but the, um, I was starting to really feel this. And I was hearing a lot of things, and I was like, you know, live to win. That's exactly what we talked about in 1974. Mm. So... I started to think of thematically, how can this all come together? And I don't want to make just some concert film with Paul. I want to make a motion picture. How are we going to do this? What, what, what can we do? So I started throwing around some ideas, and then I, they were brought to Paul. And Paul was like, I like this. Okay, and then he started checking out my work, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. This looks pretty good. So then um, we hooked up, and I reminded him, that I don't know if you 
even possibly remember me, but I'm that kid <laughs> back in 1974. And he actually did remember. Wow. I couldn't even believe it. I was just like, because he read a story and he saw, he was like, yeah, that, I, yeah, I remember that kid. And it's like, well, here I am and pay up. Let's make that movie. <laughs> Well, you know, it really it is more than just a concert movie. You start off with his story, you know, and, and he's talking at the start of the movie. And, you know, it really, it, it, I saw that tour, which was amazing. I mean, that was Paul and a band that were just absolutely on fire. And you captured oh, that, but there is a bigger feel to it. Like you said, it's not just the concert movie. There's a bigger feel to it. And you've captured, you know, what was going on with him at the time. But that whole, what I always think is kind of the positive Paul Stanley vibe, you know, and it boils down to live to win, you know, and it really, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think that's the real takeaway of that movie is boy, you know, he, he was doing it. And especially on that album, which was a very, I think, probably a more personal album than anything he'd ever done with Kiss because it was, you know, he really was talking about, you know, his depression or his divorce or, you know, things like that. And it was really kind of a, a departure in a lot of ways because you were getting a Paul Stanley that was maybe less guarded than Kiss Paul Stanley. And you captured mm -hmm. so much of that tour, which is just absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. We really, You know, I'll tell you. Paul and I, we just really, we gave it our all in that picture, boy. We, we really, um, I remember I said to him, I, I hope I could say this, uh, I said to him, uh, we said we were going to make the movie, and I looked at him and I said, you know, and this was hard because, you know, this is a man I love since I'm a kid, and he's, like, I consider him a mentor to me and everything else, and I looked right at him and I said, you know, I'm going to kick your ass with this movie. <laughs> and he said... Good, because I'm going to kick your ass, too, with it. Nice. And I just love that, because I was like, damn it, he's going to bring it. All right. So, I, you know, I was, then I was around him a lot, and, uh, and I just saw such dedication, such, I mean, like, for example, when we were shooting the prologue that you brought up with in, in, in For One Life Kiss, um, I was with them in New York. Uh, it was the opening weekend of where well, he had done a show at the Plaza, then he went to, to Pennsylvania, and I was with him. And um, his mom and dad were there. It was really, really great. I always loved seeing Paul's mom and dad because the nicest people. And thankfully, you know, you know, Mr. Eisen is still with us, which is wonderful. I believe he's 102 mm -hmm. now. And uh, I love that. I, I just, he's, you know, great spirit. I mean, you know, and I think there, there's the man who, like, you know, Talk this man about, like, you know, I mean, like, that, I always think about Paul's Firebird guitar and his dad refinishing it in the furniture shop where mm. it used to be a maple burst and then went to be a black, you know, in between uh, Hotter Than Hell and uh, um, um, Dress to Kill tours. And I'm thinking about his dad redoing that and all the, you know, the things that his dad, you know, you know, did for him in terms of the band and, you know, and, and his early life, you know, cause what people don't understand is about a lot of, you know, members of kiss is that at that time when they were coming home from those tours, live tour, and else, they were going back home to their childhood home. Right. I mean, they didn't get their own apartments in Manhattan until like destroyer. So it's like, you know, the, it, it, I, you know, I like to remind people as much as I can, that, you know, Paul is a person. Yes, he's a rock legend. 
Yes, he's an icon. Yes, he's, you know, created a phenomenon that will never be forgotten. But at the end of the day, he's a person. He's a human being. And that's something I really wanted to capture with One Live Kiss. I wanted to capture a great musician, a great songwriter, a legendary musician and and an icon of the music world, but also a man, a person, a husband, a father, a, a son, um, a brother. I wanted to capture that real guy. And I studied the set list, and I saw the flow, the dynamics of what were happening there, and I saw that he was weaving a story with that very set list of the Live to Win tour. And I said, you know something? We're really going to flush this out. It's going to be done visually, thematically. I want to show passion. I want to show fury. I wanna, and I want to show the, the sweat flying off of him as he's hitting chords. I want to show how phenomenally well he's playing the guitar. That he's one of the best rhythm guitarists you could ever find. And his skill as a guitar player which is often not even thought of. Just like, unfortunately for Gene, people don't think of how, how fine of a bass player Gene can be when he wants to be. Absolutely. You know, and, yeah. I mean, I remember once being with them in Las Vegas and uh, at the Palms, and um, they had done a show, and I was just really struck that night of how phenomenally well Gene was playing. And... Um, because, you know, sometimes he'll run the neck, he'll be like, you know, more sloppy in the playing. And, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, how give these guys a break. They've been at it forever, you know? <laughs> right. But this particular night, he was really nailing it. I mean, he was like, you know, he was really on, you know, happening. I guess he really felt like bringing it. And after the show, I said to him, geez, Gene, that was, that was some terrific playing. Wow. And I brought up some instances. And he was like, well, you were really listening. <laughs> And I was like, "Well, no, thank you. I love. I, I, I think I love hearing you play. When when you're, you know, you're what you do, how you do it. It's just, it's, it's, it's so uniquely you. I love when you bring that." And he just looked at me and he was like, "Thank you, Lou." And it was like nobody says stuff like this to me. And I just like, you know, it, it's not, you know, I'm not brown nosing. I'm not doing this. I'm not. I'm saying it from my heart. You know, and uh, I wanted to show. Very critically, as you could see, the close-ups and the way he's playing his guitar, what he's doing. I wanted to show visually and how his interplay with the band members, coming off chords, riffs, feeling. I wanted to show that, you know, there you're seeing that hint of, okay, Paul doesn't have the makeup on, but man, that's Paul Stanley. There's no denying, with or without makeup, nobody moves like that on stage but him. And nobody plays a guitar like that but him. And obviously you captured this in one live kiss, which will be featured this weekend at the River West Park Camp Fear Nightmare Theater, 23301 West Maple Road, Elkhorn, Nebraska, at the Kiss Halloween Spectacular. You can go to CampFearOmaha.com for all the details. Kiss Army in the sound of my voice, you know you want to go to this. Imagine seeing one live kiss up on a big screen, 
We're talking with Louis Antonelli, who created One Live Kiss with Paul Stanley. He'll be on hand to play this movie for you, and we know already that the audio and video will be in sync because he's meticulously <laughs> making this happen. So Kiss Army, hit that website. You're going to want to make sure that you uh, go to this event this weekend. It is Halloween weekend, so everybody's out there looking for some fun. What no. was it like? I mean, hey. Obviously, I was going to say going back to this. Now you've you have a mentor and an idol and someone that you've looked up to and listened to for all this time. What's the reality now? One of the things people say is you should never meet your idols. Now you're working as colleagues. You're working as a peer. He's trusting you to capture this amazing tour. I always find that to be an amazing responsibility. He is trusting you, Lewis, mm -hmm. to capture this and get what he wants. What's the feeling like working with him? Uh, he's flat out. Um, there are two people in the entertainment business that I've worked with that are so similar, yet from different time periods from different cultures from different in other words from different mindsets entirely but yet the similarities are so much there and i i've told paul this i was just like you know paul there's a guy you remind me of so much when i work with you and he's like well, who's, who's that lou and i was like dizzy gillespie wow i said you really remind me of dizzy I said, because, you know, Dizzy, you know, because I'll tell you something. A lot of people don't realize how funny Paul is. Paul is hilarious. He has told me some of the most wild, <laughs> funny jokes before shows, before we were in Munich, Germany once. It was Mother's Day. And he told me this whole joke about this kid, Timmy, and his dad, which, I, which was tied into Mother's Day. I thought it would drop dead. It was so funny. Okay? It's just, it's just like, you know, here we are where there, it's like, you know, midday, and Paul just walks up to me, and he goes, you know, there was this kid, Timmy. In other words, it wasn't like, you know, he just brought it. And I was just like, crack me up. And, he, <laughs> and one of the great things with Kiss is, is that, I mean, Eric Singer is hilarious because he's one of the greatest ball busters God ever created. And usually the the brunt of it is Gene. <laughs> poor, poor Gene. He gets a lot of help for uh, just, you know, because he's, he's, he's Uncle Gene now. You know, it's like, you know, people always say they're demon and this and that. But I'll tell you, Gene will take more time with fans. He just, I mean, I, I've, I've even told him, I said, you know, Gene, I think you need to have the Gene Simmons overnight pajama party. <laughs> um, because you love, to, you love to talk to the fans. You really do. And he, because he, I mean, in the meet and greet, he's, he's usually there. Everybody's got to call him and say, come on, we got to play a show. Right. Um, he's usually there longer than anybody is. Agreed. Um, yeah. And he's, because you know, that's who he is. And, you know, it's like he, uh, and, and, you know, like, like Paul always likes to say something I just, here's a great Paulism. And that's, um, because, you know, I'm not a ham. I'm the whole pig. Yep. <laughs> I, I mean, I love that. And there's other stuff like, okay. Uh, Keith and I were in the, these are just wonderful kiss moments. That I like to share because, you know, I mean, I've been blessed and, 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 and fortunate to live a life that I know a lot of fans would love to. And, um, so I enjoy sharing these things because I, you know, I want to bring to you to people, you know, this, this very simple thing. And that is that these are people, you know, when you're with them and you have, you have a lucky enough to spend time with them and everything else, you know, don't, alienate their humanity understand they're people they have same problems you do 
don't think their money or anything else means they don't have problems. They don't have things. They're not. They don't have good days, bad days, bad breath, bad hair. <laughs> all these different things they do. They're people. They're human beings. And I think when people lose sight of that and just see like the legend, that's when you know there's a problem to that. I think, and it even happens to me. Believe me, after all this time of times I've spent with Kiss and Paul, and when I see sometimes my phone ring. It's usually it used to happen in the past a lot when we were very seriously working on the film and stuff, which I w- will say, too, just to digress slightly, you brought it up, trust. Mm-hmm. There's something about Paul, like I say about Dizzy. When you have that trust, he lets you go. Paul does not. Paul is not a micromanager. Paul is not, especially when it comes to, like, you know, Paul freely says, no, I'm not. I'm not a movie maker. I, you know, I uh, don't expect you to wear my makeup and play my guitar, and I don't <laughs> expect me to go down there and work your cameras and tell you what to do. And I like that about Paul because he respects. If you've earned his respect and trust, he lets you go. And then we just, you know, there were very minor changes done to One Live Kiss after I completed a cut. I will never forget getting the phone call from him when he saw the first cut and he said to me, so wow, you've been really busy. And I said, yeah, I said, it's been, it's been a blast. I love it. I said, um, and I was just waiting to hear what he had to say. He goes, well, all I could say is, is that you blew me away. It's like, this is, this is a work of art. This isn't just something, this is a work of art. This is, it's entertaining. It's incredible. And then he says this to me, something no performer has ever said to me, ever. He said, there's just one little problem with it. I said, what? What is that? He goes, well, it's it's, it's just great. But the biggest problem with it is there's too much me. (laughs) He goes, I was showing it to some other people, and I was wondering if they were going to see it, and they was like, boy, you're on the screen a lot, Paul. Mm. So he was like, I know you... I know how you shot it, and I know what you did. He goes, can we widen it out a little bit to show a little bit more reaction with the band and then more of individual members and things with the band? I was like, of course we can. I was like, did I really concentrate on you that much visually? He was like, yeah. Mm. And I was like, but he didn't tell me, well, change that, 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 that. He didn't have, like, you know, a, a list with time code numbers on it telling me right. you know, how, to, how to make my film. <laughs> he let me make my film, but he gave these suggestions and, and, would, and would go like, you know, um, like, okay, here's another, other, another example. I wanted to end the movie with this poetic piece from 1917 about this star, because I do, I, I'm a published poet and I've done a lot in poetry, and I felt that this piece of of literature really reflected about his him, about his personality. And he saw it and he said, Lou, I love that. I think it's terrific. He goes, but you know something? I don't think it's going to resonate with my fans. Mm. I don't think my fans are going to like that. He goes, so what do you, what, what do you, what do you say to, how about if I write something for the end of the film? And we, we, we put it like that. If you want to have something like that, that is like a coda to the film. And I said, well, can we keep the, the dedication to your family? Because I really, that's very important to me. I really want to keep that. He said, oh, absolutely. Because then we're all touched for that. 
goes, but can I write something? And I was like, can you please, will you? Yeah. And, and, and he did. And, you know, we, we worked on a little bit together, but that's him, you know, and like, and like the uh, opening and, and the prologue, that's him. That's not, it's not some script he's reading from or anything else. That's me giving him the coaching and direction and so forth in a very unobtrusive way so that he can be fully him. Because that's what, one of the things a director really needs to do is give a performer every space, every amount of space in the world and every freedom in the world to let that self come out. Not just the performer, but the self come out. And one of the problems in my business is, is too many people over-direct. Because mm. they, they need to prove how good they are or something. I don't, or how, you know, you know oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so special. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, you're not. Everybody did the same to did what you did before you did it 100 years ago. So stop, get over yourself. Okay, after the great train robbery and after Citizen Kane, you're f***ed. Excuse me. Beep that. Bleep. Bleep. I'm sorry. Um, anyway, I just get a kick out of, you know, people. It's like, you know, you're not reinventing the wheel every time. Okay. You got to, you get out there and if you make a, it's up to the audience. If you've made a damn good film, that's not up to you. You just can do your best. And if you feel proud in it, just be happy that people come out to see it. But yeah, they, uh, Paul is one of the greatest people to work with in the business. And let me tell you, I've worked with some real pieces of work. Okay, I worked with some people who it was actually in their writer of their contract that they weren't to be, you weren't to look them in the eye. <laughs> well, you know, I think you really summed it up just now. You made a damn good movie and bringing us right up to the present. This one live kiss will be featured at the Kiss Halloween Spectacular this weekend at the River West Park Camp Fear Nightmare Theater, 23301 West Maple Road, Elkhorn, Nebraska. Go to CampFearOmaha.com. Uh, obviously, Lou, can you give us just a quick kind of uh, rundown of what people can expect when they come to the event this weekend? Uh, yes. Um, in, 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 the, in, the, in the best uh, tradition of KISS, we're going to blow your doors off. <laughs> when, you come, when you come to this event, you are going to not only have an opportunity to win a whole lot of prizes from KISS, uh, which includes uh, picks, uh, official stage use pick sets, T-shirts and posters, and we're giving away so much stuff, I think somebody's going to take me home with them. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm going to be something in somebody's collection. They're going to like put me in a like glass case. I'm going to be in somebody's collection. You're going to be filling you know, somebody's bar mitzvah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so we're giving away a lot of stuff, and uh, this show is very special to me because of several reasons I'll bring up now. And that's well, number one, we're we're going to show um, the films in particular, um, One Live Kiss, in full digital cinema, huge screen, um, the way it was designed and meant to be seen theatrically. It's going to be with full concert sound, multi-channel concert sound. You're not going to come to this thing and see just like, you know, some anything up on the screen. You're, you're going to see like what you'd see in, one, in, a, in a big, you know, big movie house. And that's calibrated and you're going to see the film as it was intended to be seen and heard. Not uh, and uh, you can watch it at home, yes, on DVD or hope soon, hopefully a Blu-ray, HD Blu-ray. But 
um, it's not just, it's not the same experience as seeing it theatrically, um, especially when I'm calibrating it myself because I'm OCD times ten. Uh, <laughs> I, I could tell you that. The other thing is is that um, you know there's been a lot of great people connected with this show, and uh, the shout outs I've got to give is to um, <clears throat> factions of the Kiss Army, in particular Kiss Army Omaha. Uh, with Javier and Rob, they've they've been so they've become such good friends and of mine because they have cared about this show so much, and I believe they're the ones who hooked me up with you. Look, I'm going to send a shout out. Javier has been a fan of listening to the Kiss Room for as long as I've done the Kiss Room, and he's the one that hooked this up. And I I give a shout out to him. Hail Javier! I really appreciate you getting this. And Lou, I really appreciate you giving me so much of your day here to chat. And uh, I hope everybody comes out to the event and has a great time. And I really do appreciate you sharing so much of your uh, stories with us today. Well, it's been it's been my pleasure. I love sharing with Kiss fans, and uh, I feel humble that Kiss fans have embraced me all these years as they have. And I get I get mail constantly. I, I get mail all the way from um, uh, people that are like. Uh, you know, why aren't uh, Peter and Ace in, in One Life Kiss? <laughs> I, I love that one. That's one of my favorites. Um, they, people swear at me all the way to people just saying uh, recently somebody just did because uh, we just had a uh, I premiered uh, One Life Kiss with Paul in October of 2008. And it, it, this anniversary just happened and there was a flood of outpouring of people saying, you know, happy, you know, happy birthday, one live kiss. And there's one live kiss parties around the world. People have viewing parties of the movie. And somebody recently said to me, they were like, and this, you know, it's funny. You, you know, you, you dream about this kind of stuff when you're a kid of in, in this and you want to, you know, reach people and entertain people. And somebody actually says to you, you know, that either you changed your life or something you did, which has been said to me, which I'm incredibly humble mm. for. And also somebody said to me, I uh, wrote recently a wonderful lady. She said, um, name is Lisa. She said, um, Louis Anthony, you're a gift to the world. Wow. And I'm just like blown away by that. I'm so <laughs> touched and humble that, uh, but speaking of people, um, you know, recently the kiss family lost somebody very dear and very precious, Fran Stuber. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul's longtime guitar tech and stage manager. He worked, we worked very closely with us on One Live Kiss. I love Fran. We all loved Fran. I know Paul is very hurt over the loss of Fran. And um, one of the things I'm doing with this show, and I, I really want um, to, to be representative of Kiss fans all over for this and that because Fran was so good to people I and mean, he would give kids picks and throw picks out and do all kinds. Of, I mean, just the, one of the kindest guys. And for us to lose him at 52 years old is just boggles my mind. Yeah. And uh, we're all devastated. And I'm just could say this, this show is going to be dedicated to Fran mm. and Fran's. I want to please listen his fans because this is very important all of us who do this in this business not all of us are rich by any means at all um if you can earn a decent living in what we do you're fortunate then sometimes you break through and you get more money or less but you know most of us we just make a living or a damn good living and you know that that's 
what 98% of the entertainment business is. It's not to get rich. That's a different kind of thing that happens. Paul calls it winning the lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he always says, um, we didn't win the lottery once, we won it twice. <laughs> and whoever can and whoever can't appreciate that, well, they just never deserve to have it any, to begin with. <laughs> Because I mean, he doesn't. You know, he, he realizes fully well that it's rare that it happens. You know, so um, what I want to do with this show is that um, I've put my own money into this show of um, you know um, putting it on, promoting it, all that. I'm not at all interested in getting it back, even though I could certainly use it. But no, I don't want to get it back. What we're doing is we want to, um, all the proceeds of the show, we're going to donate to the um, Fran Stuber Memorial Fund to go fund me for his wow. um, family, for his wife and two sons. Mm. So, uh, KISS fans, please join me in that. Whatever you could give, if it's a dollar, if it's $5, please give to Fran's fund because everybody in this business is just a working professional, giving it their all, and um, they have families. And if you could help out Fran and his family, um, even if you never met Fran, believe me, um, at shows, you felt him because everything he did for Paul made Paul's performance that much greater. And everybody in the crowd heard him every night say, you wanted the best and you got the best. That was him doing that call, which, uh, you know, that's Yep. Everybody in that room feels that every time. There's nothing like it. So, so Louis Antonelli, I can't thank you enough. I had a great time talking with you, and thank you for sharing so much of a chunk of your time with me today. Is there any last-minute thought you'd like to leave to the KISS Army listening all around the planet? Um, yes. Um, thank you very much. I love you all, and it's such a pleasure to uh, be part of you. It's like, you know, like uh, Paul always says and Gene and the band, you know, we're all KISS fans. At the end of the day, we're all KISS fans. And it's so much fun to uh, have met so many of you, and I'm honored when you write me. And um, even when you are mad at me that (laughs) Ace and Peter are not in one live KISS, that's okay, too. Um, Or, um, like, you know... uh, one of my favorites is uh, somebody wrote me one or, or wrote on Amazon. Pardon me, that um, the film great, but could have been better. And then they go on to say, um, "I don't understand what all the useless hype about director Louis Antonelli is about. A six-year-old could have made this." Oh, oh yes, no, we oh wait, we had a great time with that because okay, I was with Kiss and I was talking. I was just like, uh, "Look at this thing again," <laughs> and. Um, I said, you know, it's so terribly unfair. They're like, I know this. Nobody should say this. I was like, no, I'm talking about all those wonderful six-year-old directors that I have not reached yet. I'm, I'm more <laughs> four and a half, five years old. It's so unfair. And everybody's just laughing like crazy. And I was just like, how unfair is that to the brilliant six-year-olds who are directing out in the world right now? I'm not there yet. You know, oh, don't write great. that. It's not true. Oh yes, we. It, it's great fun. You know, so <laughs> no, I, yeah. thank you all. And you know, for for young media students and filmmakers out there, just you're in a tough, tough, tough world, and just keep going with it. Um, but don't be ridiculous about it. Um, don't um, don't think for a moment you're not going to have to suffer for your art because you sure will. 
and that's going to be in different ways that you never even imagined. But if you love it enough, if you got enough passion for it, and the critical component, if you have some luck on your side, you might be able to tell some stories that reach some people. Fantastic. So good luck with that, people. Fantastic, Lewis. I really appreciate your time. And for everybody who took the time to listen, I hope that you go to CampFearOmaha.com, get all the details, and go see One Live Kiss and all the other action-packed things of the Kiss Halloween Spectacular happening this weekend. You're in the Kiss Room on Mako Radio, where music and minds meet. Degraded down before you're done. Rejection, depression, can't get what you want. You ask me how I made my way. You ask me everywhere and why. You hang on every word I say. But the truth stands like a lie. Suffocates your mind Confusion, delusion Kills your dreams in time You ask me how I took the pain Crawled up from my lowest snow Step by step and day by day Till there's one last breath to go Kiss Army, we're back, and thank you for sticking around on this bonus edition of the Kiss Room for October. Thank you, Louis Antonelli, for sharing all those great stories and for giving me so much of your time. I really do appreciate it. And like what we were talking about, obviously, the big event this weekend, if you're listening to me before Halloween, 
is the Kiss Halloween Spectacular happening at the River West Camp Fear Nightmare Theater, 23301 West Maple Road, Elkhorn, Nebraska. So if you go to CampFearOmaha.com, you can get all the information. I know after listening to Lewis talk about that, Anybody within the sound of my voice and certainly within the driving distance to Omaha, you're going to want to be there for that because that sounds fantastic. So once again, shout out to Lewis for coming on and spending so much of your time talking to me. I really appreciate it. Again, shout out to Javier Boaster, Kiss Army Omaha for hooking that up. Javier was the one who really helped me get that interview Javier, I thank you for always supporting the Kiss Room and for being such a good friend. And it was great fun as we were talking about the Live to Win Tour. You know, I was thinking back to that for myself was um, Paul Stanley's Live to Win Tour came to Philadelphia at the Theater of the Living Arts. It was October 30th, 2006. And if I remember correctly, it was a Monday. Okay, and I was not even going to go to that event. I didn't have tickets because we had an event here at Monco that night, like a like a movie event or something. And I was kind of in charge of it. And I'll be honest with you, I don't even remember what movie it was. It wasn't Rocky Horror because we had done that like a year or so prior. But I'm sitting in my office and I'm listening to Paul Stanley on the radio with WMMR, which, of course, if you know this area, you know WMMR is the powerhouse rock station of Philadelphia. So here's Paul Stanley, and he's talking. They're having a great interview. And at the end, they say, you know, okay, caller 13, 14, 15, you know, we're going to give away tickets, and you can get to the sound check and everything like that. So, of course, you know, even though I'm thinking I can't even go, um, ring, 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 boo. Hey, hey, WMMR, your caller 13. What? You know, so how about that? And I actually won the chance. They said, can you get down here by 5 o'clock? And I say, of course I can. So I hand off the DVD for the movie. I said, look, you're in charge of this movie. I split, and I drove a million miles an hour from the Bluebell campus of Montgomery County Community College all the way down to the TLA. And I make it right in time. And I get there, and, you know, they, oh, great, great. And they have everybody kind of lined up, all these winners that were there. And we get to go into the sound check. And there's like nobody there. Imagine the Theater of the Living Arts. The whole place is empty. And there's a couple people milling around. Now, if you're cool, you know, you stand in the back with your arms crossed like, oh, you know, I'm too cool for this. And uh, I am not cool. I walk right down the front. And now you're seeing the sound check. Literally, I'm, I'm by the edge of the stage. Paul Stanley and his band are doing the sound check. Unbelievable. He comes walking off. Everybody got a picture with him. He was signing stuff. And then you got to go back and you could get a one-on-one just for a couple seconds. You're going to talk to him. I say, Paul, it's so great to see you. He says, hey, it's so great to see you. He acts like he knows you. I know he doesn't know me, but man, he makes you feel like he is happy to see you. And I said, man, you should do, instead of Detroit Rock City, do Philadelphia Rock City because I drove, you know, 100 miles an hour to get here on time. Hey, you know, you got to be careful. We want you to, you know, be alive or, you know, be alive or something like that. Like, you know, don't, don't drive, don't get in a crash. But this great little conversation, you know, I wish I could remember every word. I'm not that smart, but it was a great fun time. The show was amazing. Of course, anybody that saw that tour knows that was an amazing tour. It's a great memory that I have. So I'm going to wrap it up with that. Look, with the idea that he even said, look, live to win. Have a great time. Come back for the Kiss Room in November. Go this weekend to uh, Lewis's event. See One Live Kiss on a huge digital screen the way it was meant to be. 
He's got all kind of goodies thrown into this on this weekend that you are not going to want to miss. If you're in the Omaha area or just the sound of my voice, you're going to want to go. And join us back here next month in the Kiss Room on Monaco Radio, where music and minds meet.
I'll tell you something. You know, a lot of bands like to brag about their fans. Now, naturally, you better believe we brag about you, but we want you to know something. We want you to know, we know that you are our fans, but don't you ever forget, we are your fans, we love you! Thank you for listening to The Kiss Room. Stay tuned to Montco Radio. Any last minute crazy things you want to say to conform with expectations? No, but I will say something to anybody out there that's, you know, the weird guy or the weird girl that always has the weird things that they do that their friends put them down for. Don't think it's so weird. Maybe someday somebody will let you give you the chance to make a living out of it. You just stick to it. You'd be weird.